This is episode number 139 of the Rising Man podcast with Kevin Sweeney. Church is now in session. Welcome back, Rising Man fam. Good morning to you. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us here today. Welcome to the Rising Man community. If you haven't been here before, then my name is Jetty Azuma. I am the host and creator of this podcast and the founder of the Rising Man Movement. We are a global tribe of men who are committed to initiating an entire generation of men into purpose and powerful leadership. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing beyond the podcast, beyond the compass initiations, beyond the virtual men's circles, the whole point of the arrow, the tip of the arrow is initiating an entire generation of men, preparing them to be the leaders of tomorrow that we need them to be. Just look around, just look around at the news headlines, look around at the state of the world. It's clear that in every country, in every continent, we need men who are capable of being leaders who lead with their heart, who lead with purpose, who lead with clear vision and focus. And this is our way of supporting that outcome. We know there's a lot of men out there, a lot of initiatives that are doing that work. And this is our way. Our way is by gathering men together, teaching them how to lead themselves, how to lead other men, teaching them how to go out into the wilderness to connect with the deep voice of inner truth, to connect with the natural world and begin developing a relationship with nature, with this planet, with all the resources and the elements that we have here. And so right now, if you're not leaning into that journey in your way to become the best leader that you can, then I want to invite you to head over to risingman.org. See what opportunities we have for you there. We've got a lot of different ways for you to get involved, to keep sharpening your sword and training yourself up to be that leader you know you can be. We've got our virtual men's fire circles that's got almost 100 guys from all over the world now. We've got our 12-week inferno journey where you get to be on a team with me and eight other men for the next 12 weeks. We've got our four-day compass initiation where you come out into the wilderness and complete a four-day fasting ceremony to mark your passage from boyhood into manhood. So many ways for you to take your journey further, your evolution, your transformation deeper. So go to risingman.org and check it out. All right, my guest for today is Kevin Sweeney. Kevin is co-founder and curator of Imagine, an urban church in Honolulu that is welcoming of all people, sees imagination as the key to the future, chooses authenticity over performance, substance over hype, and quality over quantity. And Kevin is also the host of a new podcast called The Church Needs Therapy. After receiving master's degrees in theology and intercultural studies, Kevin is committed to creating environments for creativity, cultural innovation, social healing, and personal transformation. He lives in Honolulu with his wife and co-founder of Imagine, Christine, and their two kids, True and Michaela. In this episode, Kevin gave a new perspective on church, faith, and spirituality. We dug into our personal upbringings around organized religion, Kevin growing up with very little exposure to the church and myself being surrounded by it. We talked about the importance of having a connection to something that is true for you and why we all need to make space for each other's interpretation of spirit and spirituality if we want to have a healthy global society. Kevin shared about the wounding we receive as boys that often follows us into manhood. And we dove into the survival strategies we develop as young people but fail to shed as adults. How you can identify them and choose differently. This and so much more packed into this episode, but without further ado, Kevin Sweeney. All right, 
Rising Man fam. Got another man joining us today live from Honolulu, Hawaii. Did I say that right? Hawaii? Close enough, man. You, if you try to put any little bit of a space right there between, it shows enough effort when people will appreciate it. There we go. Well, there we go. My best effort at it. Kevin Sweeney joining us from Honolulu, Hawaii. Good to have you here, bro. Yeah, Jetty, appreciate you uh, reaching out from the team, whoever did that. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation with you and to be able to connect with the listeners, the people who follow along with what you're doing. So yeah, I anticipate some good stuff coming from this. Yes, sir. Well, let's jump right in, man. Every time I have somebody on here, I start off with this question to get some context. So for you, what is the difference between a boy and a man? Oh, I should have known. I forgot that there was like a first question to hit us with. A few things that come to my mind immediately between a boy and a man. A man is one who refuses to blame. A man is one who understands that taking ownership of their own life is one of the most powerful things they can do. A man is one who sees responsibility not as something that restricts their freedom, but actually enhances it and awakens it along the way. So I could go on and on about lists, but even those few things right away is a whole lifelong journey for boys to really be transformed into men who can, who understand how powerful they are, who understand what humility is, who understand what it means to give their lives in service and love for others. So yeah, I think I'll start with a couple of those. It's pretty good. Yeah. Well, let's pick one of those pieces apart. I really, I love everything that you said, but specifically that piece about how responsibility enhances a man's freedom. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, I think I avoided leadership my entire life. You know, when I was young, like I had a lot of expectations on me socially to play basketball in college when I was coming up and I was supposed to play. It's a whole story of why I chose to walk away from that, like right after my senior year of high school. But I remember being young and when you are like, let's just say the best player on teams, you know, throughout your life, the coaches naturally want to put on you another form of leadership where it's not just enough to be the most skilled, but they're, they know and it, because they're more mature. They know they're like, Kev, you can lead this team. You can be a guy who people rally around. You can be that person. And when I was young, I just, that always made me really uncomfortable. And I was like, I was young and I was like what people would call a troubled youth. Like I was in like gang prevention programs, even though I'm white in LA, I'm like, it's not really white gangs around here, but I get like what they're trying to do. And at that point, I could play it off like with my friends or with the homies of like, oh, like for me, it was like, oh, trying's lame. It's like, oh, if you try too hard, like that's whack. Like I want to be the best one on the team, but like, I don't want to be that guy who's, it's the fourth quarter and we're down 20 and we're like, come on guys, we can do it. I'm like, bro, we're not going to win. <laughs> you know, like it's just a game, but I can look back and back like, because of, you know, I can play it off on the fringes of like being cool. But as I got older, I realized there was a part of me that was always scared of taking that on. I was scared of people looking to me to lead them. I was scared of people wanting more from me than just my skill set. You know, where it's a more holistic relationship of looking for some form of connection, looking for me to lead them in those types of ways. And I was really, really uncomfortable with it. And I think unconsciously throughout my life, I saw responsibility as something that got in the way of the freedom that I desired. And it wasn't until I got older, and even really as my wife and I started to imagine the community of faith that we're leaders of, 
for the first time in a real, like I'm taking that big risk. I'm putting myself out there publicly. I'm letting people into my life in a really close way. And what I discovered through that journey was that responsibility, which is a weight and it is heavy, like leading, you know, there, of course there's parts of that that come with it, but I'm like, that didn't get in the way of my freedom and actually enhanced it. Cause I'm like, there's parts of me that would only be awakened when I have the courage to lead. There's parts of me that are only going to come alive when I take the risk of allowing people close to me. Because I think looking back at all those times in my life, when people try to put it on me, I can say there was like two big fears I had beneath the surface of my life. And one was failing publicly. When you put it out there, I'm going to try this. I'm going to start rising man, right? I'm going to take this risk to do this and everybody knows. And then it might not work. And that's really scary because we, I think our ego naturally fears those conversations where then you don't see a friend for two years and they're like, how did that work out? And you have to have a hundred conversations of, oh man, you know, see, we, we tried, but like just the unconscious fear of those conversations keeps people from taking risks. And I think the other fear is one's the fear of failing publicly. And the other one was the fear of disappointing people close to me. What if I let people in close enough and I'm really trying and they decide I don't have it? You know, what if I let people into my life and I embrace them and they embrace me and I am really pouring myself out as much as I can and then someone along the way decides to leave or decides I don't have what I always sensed deeply I did. Both of those things, looking back, I think were beneath the surface. But then when I was 15, I'm like, oh, that's just, that's lame. You don't want to do that. But as you get older, you're like, there's actually a lot more going on here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I totally understand that, man. I think that's a really well-articulated description of what a lot of us go through when those opportunities to step up. I remember being younger and wanting all of the rewards of taking on big responsibility without the consequences or without the heaviness of it, without the implications of what it means to be a man who takes responsibility. And I really like what you said there. It makes me think of something one of my mentors shared with me that about freedom, because that word freedom is something I think matters a lot to all people, but specifically men. There's a relationship with freedom that every man has. And I remember he said to me, he said, you know, you keep thinking that freedom is about having choices, but a truly free man doesn't have any choices. He only has commitments. And that took me about two years to really chew on and really understand, but the way, at least the way I interpret it now is that when I only have commitments, when my path is so clear in front of me and what I'm up to every day and why I'm up to what I'm up to every day is laid out in front of me, then that's really freedom. Because I know I've been in a place where everything was laid out before me. I could do anything I wanted to do and be completely paralyzed by having so many choices and no certainty in my path. Yeah, that is so good. And you think being bound, say like as a pastor, like there's a sense of boundedness I have to people, meaning commitments. Like you said, I've made a commitment to be with people, lead people, guide people, whatever, however we label it. And you think, oh, if I bind myself too strongly and embrace the structure of it, it's going to take away. I'm like, that's the place it all comes alive. Like every, like showing up when you don't feel like it, man, that's a part of what it means to become a man and embrace that responsibility. Saying, I'm going to be here for you no matter what, that's a part of stepping in to all of that. And I think that actually is a great paradox of responsibility where the very things that you think will get in the way actually become the very things that clear the way 
for more of you to emerge, but you don't know it until you do it. Because beforehand, all you see is the responsibility. All you see is the hard part. But when you really love are committed to something bigger than yourself, like it doesn't mean it's not hard, but you just accept and embrace whatever hard parts are a part of it. Like This is just a part of it. It's like you said, a risk and reward. You can't do this without accepting this. And if you don't accept this as a part of the journey, you're not going to do that. And I always know this, whether it's like creatives, artists, young men, whatever you feel called to, when you are not stepping into what deep down you know is yours to do, you will always feel restless. Always. You will never feel the contentment, the aliveness, call it whatever you want, the electricity of life. If, if I know deep down, man, I can do that, or I've always wanted to do that, but I'm not doing it, that disconnect right there in our vocational identity, like there will be a restlessness, which oftentimes turns into cynicism, anger, bitterness, or whatever it is. You know, it's like, it's the embracing of the whole journey, not just the parts you want that allows like so much of yourself and your contribution to the world and humanity to actually come out. Yeah, I love that, man. What a great place to start. Let's shift over years here. You identified yourself as a pastor, and I know that you and your wife are the, I guess, the founders and the leaders of the Imagine Church where you're at. So before we start talking about any more of that, I want to hear what your definition is of church. Because I know a lot of people, myself included, hear the word church, and that has a certain connotation to it. Mm, that is a good question. Well, I think on, on one level, it's a community. You know what I mean? So it's a community who hopefully sees itself as contributing to a larger cosmic story, right? There's this story in the biblical narrative. There is this deep sense of hope and faith that comes out of in the, this is all moving towards healing. This is all moving towards a new creation. This is all moving towards oneness. This is all moving towards heaven and earth becoming one where there's no more tears and there's no more injustice and it's all going to be made right. And the church is the people who says, and we want to embrace our role as human beings to not only receive the goodness of that, but to become people who work and build for that right now. So on the one hand, a church is a group of people who understands there's a much bigger story happening, a story of healing, and they want to be a part of it. You know, obviously in the, in the traditional historical sense, you know, the church, one of the primary metaphors for the church in the scriptures is like the body of Christ. So it's literally, you think spirit always has to take form in the world right? And the form is adaptable. The form is fluid. The form pops up in all kinds of interesting places all over the planet. Not only limited to the church, by the way, for people listening. But so the church is this really powerful place where we desire for the spirit to take form through this body so we can actually become the very source through which all of the reconciliation, justice, and healing flows through us for the world. So yeah, there's many other things to say, but I think the church is, is us creating together what we want for humanity as a whole. A place where you can be honest, a place where you can be real, a place where you can take the risk of authenticity and be met with unconditional embrace and acceptance. A place where you can make the transition from performance to presence, right? Presence is a big word from the beginning of our community of faith where 
we say we're not an event-based church, we're a presence-based church. And for so many people, especially achievement-oriented people, you know, who I am, what I do, like we all, our egos can all get caught up in different games for value. But that's one of the great risks is people coming in and us saying, can you trust that your presence is enough? You don't have to do those things here. Even when some people are like, how do I, like right away, how do I help? How do I do this? I'm like, your job this first year, just because, you know, your experience with people, I can spot that energy and that personality pretty quickly. For those, some of those people, I'm like, the first year, you don't get to do anything here. No serving, no signing up for this, no being... All you have to do is learn how to be present and receive grace for yourself. That's like the risk of you have to transition from performance to just, can I dare to believe that my presence itself is enough? And can I be loved for that? And that's one of the, that's the hardest thing. A lot of people know how to work hard, but that part is actually an extremely difficult part for people. Yeah. I mean, for me, it brings up this idea of unconditional loving. I think actually a lot of people have an easier time with that than they do with unconditional receiving just really allowing all the gifts and blessings to come in, you know, and, and to receive from people. So that's, that's a cool way that you got that set up there. I'm really interested to learn more because, you know, the podcast, I'm sure, you know, we mentioned in the intro, but the, the podcast you just started, the church needs therapy. I'm interested in what components of which church need therapy and what you're speaking to in that platform. Yeah, that's good. Cause there is no monolithic church you know, historically, globally, even domestically, right? So what I say in the first episode there is there's Greek Orthodox churches, there's Syrian churches, like just even domestically here in the U.S., there's Pentecostal churches, there's traditional Black churches, Spanish-speaking Latino churches, like et cetera, et cetera. So I tell people there's this really well-known study by the Barna Research Group. They do a lot of research on like religious statistics in, in the United States. And this was 11 years ago, this study. So whatever is said here is probably increased and even whatever the findings are, it's probably even more so now. But let's say around 10 years ago, they did this study of, you know, a couple thousand people. Like what are the top three things you think of when you hear the word Christian? And the top three things were anti-gay, Republican, and hypocritical. (laughs) I'm like... That's why there's this, I don't know if it's a website this guy used to have, but this guy's old Twitter account, it was called Jesus Needs New PR. And I'm like, that's why. Because when I do the podcast, I'm like, even though there is a plethora of expressions of the faith, when I say those statistics, people know what I'm talking about. Yes, it's primarily like there's a lot of like white evangelical communities are kind of like a dominant expression people see. But I'm like any church that fits into that category is the church that needs therapy. So it's not only limited to white evangelicals, although they're doing pretty good trying to corner that market in some ways. But it's any church where people think of hypocrisy before healing. Any church where people think of exclusion before inclusion. Anyone where people think about shame before love, those, that is the church. Those are the communities that truly need to go to therapy, which means there's things they need to let go of, things they need to talk about ownership, things they need to take ownership of, things they need to repent for, things they need to let go, things they need to move on from in order to move into a wider, more inclusive, more hopeful expression of the faith for let's say the u.s specifically but really for the whole world as a whole yeah well that's interesting i I really appreciate your perspective on it because i grew up with a i'll say a loosely based catholic upbringing 
my parents, neither of them went to church, but they sent me to, you know, Sunday school. And my grandfather was a deacon, so he was super involved. And my grandmother, his wife, was the organ player for Sunday services. And so there was almost this implication of I should be there. But every time I went to church, it felt like it was an obligation more so than a choice or something it was actually being asked to cultivate a relationship with. And I remember that, you know, I kind of just went through the motions up until I was in my early teens. And then at some point I, I thought to myself, man, I don't have any connection to what I'm doing here. I feel like I just show up to church to mass and I'm a robot and that they're talking about having this relationship with the Holy Spirit. But the only guidance I'm actually receiving about having a relationship with spirit is say these words that somebody else came up with a long time ago who I don't know and just repeat them over and over and over again. And so it completely turned me off because my whole context for prayer was saying words that someone else came up with that don't actually have any meaning or value to me. And at this point in my life, I practice my faith, my spirituality in the Native American church. And the context I received for prayer there is it's basically opening your heart and letting what's ever there flow through. And that that's an expression of spirit, that we're all an expression of spirit. And so, I, so I'm curious to see, to hear a little bit more about your early teachings about faith and how that shaped where you went with what you do. Yeah, that's what's interesting is I really didn't grow up in the church you know, I went to Catholic school first, second, third grade. I was like, I don't honestly know what the hell is happening. I didn't have a strong reaction to it. I was just indifferent. I was like, I don't even know. And then I tell people in fourth grade, my parents put us in public school. So I went to Catholic school for three years, right? First, second, third grade. When I went to public school in fourth grade, I'm like, I tell people that was for me, that was salvation as a nine-year-old going to a public school. I'm like the first day, like they're fighting at recess and just how like, I'm like all the cuss words and fighting. I was like, this is it for me. Like I'm home for me. I'm like, this is what I've dreamt of forever. God is real because I'm here right now. And so, you know, from then on into my teenage years, it was like, even though I can see my parents had like a traditional, like sort of Catholic, you know, background, my dad's family is like very Irish in that sense. But it wasn't an active reality. You know, we weren't talking about God in the house. We weren't reading the scriptures. We weren't definitely weren't talking about opening our hearts up to the spirit. You know, we definitely weren't having those conversations. So I was indifferent, you know, and I think there's actually not having a lot of the same religious baggage as a lot of people who grew up heavy in the church has served me so well even as a pastor, where I'm like, there's great gifts to growing up in the church, especially if it's a healthy, loving place. But there's a lot of baggage that people are reacting to and really trying to heal from for the rest of their lives. You know, and obviously I have a lot of those people in our community. So I know those very deeply, especially for LGBTQ people, you know, growing up in the church, like that's a whole other conversation. But I tell people when it comes to my own story, like I joke around, my dad and I weren't like close for a long time. When I was 25, we had like a reconciling moment, right? It was a power, super powerful. One of the hardest things I ever did was like kind of reaching out to him, but it was a great moment. But I would sit around and be like, basically I'm 16, 17, 18, getting arrested, eating a bunch of mushrooms. And then seven years later, I'm starting to be a pastor. I'm like, doesn't my dad ever wonder what the hell happened to me? Because he's never asked me really. You know, he just never like, was like, how did whatever happened here? But my story for my first experience of God was, I'll say this quickly, when I was 16, 17, 18, I had a life I knew other people wanted. 
And it wasn't because my family was rich and they gave me everything. It's because I was out there like getting it. You know, I was, I've been getting high since I was a little kid. That was nothing to me, you know, smoking weed every day since I was a kid, drinking heavily, doing other drugs, got really into psychedelics and mushrooms, playing basketball. I'm supposed to play in college. I was like making money from selling weed. I was like, dude, like this is it. You know, I kind of got things going on, but I could never escape what I call this inner restlessness within me. I just couldn't. I developed a radical sense of self-awareness when I was like 16 or 17, that third person looking back at myself, not only asking, what am I doing, but why am I doing what I'm doing? And I realized I have everything everyone's telling me that's supposed to make me happy and I'm not. Because no matter what girls you, no matter if it's a sexual encounter, no matter how much attention I get for sports and I was involved in music too, no matter how much clout I get, I always wake up alone and I start everything over and it haunts, it it was like haunting me. And so I just really went on this, like, I just, I was starting to see through the illusions, right? When we we talked about that a little bit before, but an illusion is very simply a false belief I have about the future. What are illusions the culture is shaping me as a teenager? If you have enough money, you're going to be happy. If enough people praise you and you're famous, you're going to be happy. If you hook up with enough girls, you're going to be happy. If you have that much of a status, you're going to be happy. And I was like, I got all those things and I'm not. I'm freaking not, and it's really bothering me, and I can't deny it. When you start to see through illusions, it raises all kinds of questions. What am I doing here? Why am I doing what I'm, do I love basketball, or do I just do it because I like what it does for my ego because it gives me a sense of status and value? That's not the same thing. Me loving something and me loving what it does for my ego is not the same thing, no matter how much people are putting it on me. And so I just start asking those deeper questions like what does it mean to be human what are we all doing here and and you start to connect with some of the darker parts of suffering and i'm like if there's no overarching what is true what is real that's all i ever want to know what's real because for me something real is like eternal it's lasting all the stuff i'm doing the drugs and all that it's not real because it just is here for a minute and it fades and that was like just every it's everybody's story who gets into it you know who comes out of it And so even though I was still doing all those things, internally, I was like distancing myself. I'm like, this isn't it. What else is it? Who am I? There's a much larger story to this, but on right after New Year's Eve when I was 18, I was tripping on mushrooms, which were a huge part of my spiritual journey towards where I'm at. You know, like I always tell people mushrooms. I'm like, if you think of a missionary in a loose sense of a missionary is someone who's pointing another person further towards the fullness of Christ. I'm like, if that's true, then mushrooms were a missionary for me when I was a teenager. Because it was like every time I did them, I got a glimpse of something further, of connection, of light, of wisdom, of whatever. But I always felt, even as a teenager, the mushrooms kept saying, yes, but keep going. The answer's not here. This is a sign pointing you beyond us to the truth of what's out there. So I was like, I kept returning and they kept pointing me further. Right around Christmas, my senior year of high school, I just have this first time I had a super scary mushroom trip, super dark. I'm like, take me to the hospital, put me in a straight jacket. Like I need to be under professional watch. That's a long story. I ended up at my girlfriend's house at the time, who's now my wife, by the way. And she had this like, and me and my friend went there and she had this really cool vibe of like low music, low lights, you know, like glow in the dark stars on the, on the ceiling. And I started to calm down and it was really late. So everyone was like in silence, basically. She probably fell asleep. And I'll tell people to this day in for the next two to three hours, I laid there in that room and I could feel light and love and life 
being fused into my entire being. When you think about that, my primary experience of spirit wasn't here are the beliefs in a system you're supposed to have. Here's what you're supposed to believe in order to be saved. Here's the prayers you're supposed to mouth in order to be embraced. It was pure, direct encounter and immediate experience of love and light and, and a great affirmation over my life. It was like God was like, yes, just to my entire being. I remember driving home that night or like my parents came to pick me up at four in the morning, I called them. And I remember going home and thinking to myself, it's not that I'm having different thoughts, although I am. It's that the very I that is having those thoughts has been foundationally transformed. That's transformation of actual consciousness, not just changing your beliefs. So even to this day, I'm like, my primary experience of God has always been direct, immediate grace, love, spirit. It wasn't, here's a belief system to believe in. Those things came later, which is a whole complex story how that happens. So yeah, that's a glimpse of, I never did mushrooms again. Because remember how I said, the mushrooms are pointing me beyond themselves to this. And once I had the source, it was like, I don't need the sign anymore. I've already arrived. Never did drugs again. Took me a little while to quit smoking weed and moved to Hawaii. Let go, let go of music, let go of sports, let go of everything that gave my ego a sense of value. Because I was like, this is it. This is it for me still to this day. There's so much to unpack in that, man. Uh, there's the restlessness you speak of is something I want to bookmark and come back to. Uh, that's a very unique experience, right? I think, I think for most people, or a lot of people at least, who are given some sort of religious education or nudging as a child, you know, hopefully to give them some sort of spiritual substance. I think that's what a lot of parents are aiming at. That's their objective. But then they end up having an experience like mine that wasn't all that, that didn't really give me what I felt like I needed. You say a lot of people like that come to you. So what is somebody who has this, I don't want to say distorted, but a context for church and faith and spirituality that has completely turned them off from going in that direction. What's the invitation back? What is the way back towards that? Yeah, there is no black or white or Asian way of breathing. Breath is breath. You know, and, and actually in the ancient Hebrew traditions, like in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, even in Greek as well, which the New Testament is written in breath, spirit, wind, it's all the same word. Right in Hebrew, this word ruach is the word for spirit and breath. In Greek, it's, it's the word pneuma. It means spirit and breath. And wind, it's all the same thing. And I'm like, everybody breathes. It, breathing is a human thing. It's not a Christian thing. It's not a Muslim thing. It's just a breathing thing. So when I think about that, I ask people like, do you desire more joy? Do you desire more peace? Do you desire more freedom? Do you desire more courage and more bravery to risk who you actually are in the world, yeah, then there's a whole journey ahead. And there is this, the way of Jesus is a way that leads us towards that. I'm like, to me, I'm like, the kingdom of God is simply for those who are thirsty. It's the religious connoisseurs who want to argue about details of who's included, excluded, the right little tweaks metaphysically you're supposed to say to somehow get God on your side. I have zero interest in those conversations. It doesn't mean I don't have beliefs, but what it means is we're not here to argue about the details. This is for the thirsty. So if you're thirsty, perhaps there's a whole new journey to go on. And I think so much of life in the church is like tasting, like even when this a famous psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm like, taste and see that this community is safe. Taste and see that this community is for you. Taste and see that this community, there's no bait and switch of, 
everyone's welcome. And then nine months later, you're like, oh, it's just the same old, you know, it's the same old bullshit. It's the same old, you know, shaming or whatever it is that people are turned off by. So I think as a community, you dare to risk to say that to people taste and see as in the community becomes an open door for people to actually go directly to the source, to God, to spirit for that. Because in a culture where so many people identify as spiritual, but not religious, I think what they're saying is we want the direct experience, spirit, love, grace. We desire those things. But the religious part, the dogma, the things that create wars, all the things we're talking about that divides people, people are just don't want anything to do with that. For people who want to, who are trying to hold on to their faith in the church, I'm like, you don't have to leave the church to be a part of a better one. Because there are wider, more faithful, more beautiful expressions of the faith. And we need you to help come create that with us. To those people, I'm like, if you really believe in that, then I don't even want you to receive it. I want you to help create that further because you can extend this church further for others too. Yeah, that was one of the biggest and most profound realizations I had as I, the way I describe it is when I really started my spiritual journey was after I left my parents' household and I went to college and the first venture into that for me was meditation. So like you said, breath, right? Just slowing down enough to appreciate my breath and to notice what came up when I was focusing on nothing other than that and where my brain would want to wander. And I remember as I started to open up and consider different possibilities and ask more questions that it became really apparent to me that most of what I was seeing in different religions and different faith-based belief systems was all the same. It was like, I thought of it as like a spiritual Mad Libs where you could take out, substitute certain words with other words from other religions. And it was almost the exact same message. At least the underlying context and message of it was be a good person, do good in the world you know, be respectful, these very basic principles to live by that actually made sense to me. But I was so caught up probably where I grew up. Cause I grew up in New Jersey, right outside of New York. You know, it's a hotbed for Catholicism and Christianity that said, no, this is the way anything other than this way is something else. And it's amazing how much that created a foundation of right and wrong within me too. And well, this is wrong. What I'm feeling is wrong. What I'm thinking is wrong. What everyone else over there is believing is wrong. And how, you know, how pervasive that is on a bigger scale too, just in, in our global society and how many problems that's created. This is a line I use with people all the time where I'm like, following Jesus isn't about being right. It's about being real. That's what the spirit has the power to lead us beyond any of the things that we think are ourselves, but are really just the ego's way to perform, to try to validate ourselves in external ways. I'm like, this whole journey is about being real. This whole journey is about being free. This whole journey is about having more joy. This whole journey is about having the courage to take those risks like we talked about earlier, vocationally, relationally, or whatever it is. It's about be the light has the ability to create an environment for the truth of your own life to emerge, you know? And that's just the thing is I don't, and again, like I have beliefs. It's not a person, I'm not a person who doesn't have any beliefs, but I'm like, but what is the point? You know, the point isn't we're arguing with people who are, I'm like, you never argue people into the kingdom of God. 
And for people who try to do that, it's an absolute waste of time and it's annoying. And it's just that there's so much better things. I think pastors or whoever it is can be doing with their energy than that, you know? And my wife, you know, loves to say, you always need to live a life that demands an explanation. And if you're following Jesus and that is producing the fruit of compassion and the sacrifices that come from, I will do this, even if it means less money, this is where I think the real juice is of life. It's the healing. It's whatever I'm doing. The people who are doing that already shine so bright. You don't have to argue with people. You know, it's spirituality, following Jesus, life with God. It's never an obligation. It's always an invitation. Always, you know, and if people go further on that path, great. But if they don't, I'm not against them. If someone disagrees, I'm not, now I'm against you. I'm like, no, there's just, we all have this ability to keep going further on a path towards becoming more human, becoming more compassionate, et cetera. So I think that's where the help of not having as much baggage comes in, where I don't have so much unconscious ideological ties to like a specific way of doing this. And I know my history, I have multiple degrees in grad school. I'm not just somebody who's like, hey man, like whatever, dude, like uh, it's not how I am. I'm, I have enough of a formation and education, but to also know the point, like Jesus says, is about loving God and loving your neighbor. I remember a young man who has more trappings of growing up in the church was at the first house we were renting when we first moved back to Hawaii. And I just had a massive bookshelf, you know, from like 20 to 28, I basically read like nonstop. So I have this huge bookshelf and he was kind of like, why do you have all that? You know, because he's been raised in a, I think a lot of evangelical environments are kind of anti-intellectual, like educations, don't get a secular education. Don't learn about evolution. You know, that's all dangerous. You're going to lose your faith. Right. So they kind of have a fear of education, but he looked at all that almost like, what's the point of this, et cetera. And I said, all of that is to help me love better. So when you look at this book that's about race and economics and class, that gives me analytical tools to see a neighborhood in a specific way so I can love it, care for it, work towards the healing of a neighborhood in a way that actually serves it well. And without those analytical tools, I don't have the ability to see the specific wounds of this neighborhood to know how to engage it. That's all clearing the way for me to be able to love people better. So this is what it's pointing us towards, not just receiving that unconditional love, like I talked about, but becoming the very people who embody that for the world and those around us. Yeah. And I think even just taking that concept away from the religious or, or spiritual dialogue and placing it into just how we are in relationship as human beings in general is that our sense of safety and security a lot of times comes from what we know and our defense of what we know, what we believe to be true keeps us safe. Because if what I believe is the truth, then I'm on the right path. And especially in religions, but in many different things, I mean, we could talk about politics, we could talk about economics, whatever. The attachment to a truth as being the way and not being able to consider or the possibility of a different truth, a different possibility of reality shuts down. It breaks relationship. It eliminates the possibility of conversation and ultimately pits people against each other. Oh man. Yes. That's so good. Uh, when you, especially when it comes to religion, try to challenge somebody's beliefs, they experience it on a, as a personal attack on them. That's very dangerous. You know, that's where so much of the vitriol and so much of the intensity of religion and politics comes from where I'm like, there's a difference between your belief in God and God as God is. 
Anytime a human being names God, they're not naming God as if they're capturing somehow in words the mysterious nature of the divine. They're naming their current understanding of God, which is always supposed to be evolving and changing, but a lot of people don't believe that. So when you have a belief system, their sense of value, like you said, and safety and security is so attached to that particular way of seeing God and seeing reality that when you challenge it, even though you believe there's more life beyond that, they experience that as there's such a reactionary response to it. Because to do that, it's a form of death. It's a form of how dare you take away the very thing that's made me feel comfortable and secure, which I have compassion for and I understand. But that over-identifying with your current beliefs, which are always supposed to be malleable and changing and adapting, is dangerous because you just get stuck there and you will spend your whole life defending your view of God, your view of church, your view of how the country's supposed to be and where we're supposed to take it back to or whatever. When once you have a couple paradigm shifts, you're like, oh, this is actually all very fluid and I'm always changing. And I always say this in the church, like a Christian is one who's always arriving. No one's arrived. Nobody, not me, not the Pope, not anybody who we think has the most wisdom. That's the irony. The people who know more, they know they don't know. And the people who don't know think they do. That's just one of those little tragic ironies of where so much weirdness comes from. Right, man. And when we're talking about healing and transformation, I think it's, especially in a time like this with COVID, I think it's so interesting to look at something like that. The arrival of a global pandemic that almost overnight shut down the entire global economy for about a month, maybe a little bit longer. And before any of that happened, I think everybody, almost everybody would have said that happens, then it's over. Like life as we know, it will never be the same. And in some respects, I think that's true. I don't think that we're going back now post COVID. We can go back to where we were, but the belief system that there's no way we could survive that. There's no way we could make it through something of that nature. There's no way we could make it through millions of people losing their jobs overnight and not having a way to provide for their families. Where in reality, that's, at least that's been in my experience of life and especially adulthood, is there's just a never ending sequence of curveballs that I can't see coming. And instead of waiting for the curveballs to stop, I'm just trying to learn how to hit it, how to stand in the box and not lose my feet. So it's interesting, these beliefs that we have that we get attached to and the, like you said, the, the, the need to be malleable mm. is so important because flexibility is required for survival in this world. Yeah, and flexibility and adaptability, even in terms of how you think about the world cognitively, is to me a great sign of spiritual maturity. You know, where you're not, the people who are more dogmatic and rigid and unflinching, that's, in any other situation, when you think about emotional maturity, being dogmatic, rigid, and unflinching, that's a sign of actually somebody who's very insecure. That's a sign of a leader who doesn't allow himself or herself to be questioned. That's a sign of somebody who doesn't allow themselves to ever be critiqued. And that's just the insecure ego that doesn't truly know who it is. So it's holding on to things externally, even if it is their beliefs, you know, in order to feel grounded. And so all the great leaders, you know, spiritually, both in the church and outside, these are open, like spirituality and in the second half of life if you're doing it right, you should be becoming more lighter and more flexible and more adaptable. And it isn't just epistemological certainty of, I believe this, it's this whole deep spirituality isn't primarily about seeing, it's about being seen. 
It isn't about loving God. It's about being loved by God. Like I tell people, I don't hold on to my belief system and white knuckle it. My deepest expression of my faith is the experience of being held by God. I'm not holding on to God. I'm being held by God. But all of those things that I just said, even if we focus on like male spirituality, all of those require a letting go and an ability to relinquish control. Whenever I see with certainty, I'm in control. Whenever I can judge who's in or out, I'm in control. If I have a mastery, which nobody does over like the identity of God, that puts me in control. The one who takes their hands off, but trust they're being held. You are embracing the reality that you are not in control here. And the power of the gospel and the mystery is you're still loved and you're still safe. That's the journey. Like to me, that's the journey into the second half of life. And I think about even the journey of like men and spirituality, men taking responsibility, boys becoming men. And there has to be this different relationship with power, a different relationship with control and a different relationship with what we think it means to have power, a different relationship with what it means to be a man, what masculinity means. And a lot of it is letting go of a lot of the toxic things that we have been taught and shaped along the way. I think that's true with our religious traditions and it's just true with our identity as men as well. So much of that needs to be reimagined, not let go of, but reimagined and redefined. Yeah. Wow. Well said, man. I 100% agree with you. And I think that that's when you were saying that about the spiritual maturity, I was thinking about, you know, the first thing they teach you in math is, you know, memorizing your times tables and to me, that's like the dogma of faith and, and religion. But then later on, eventually, once you've mastered the elements of it, you do applied mathematics and you have the ability to utilize these different skills, these different tools to create your own beliefs, to create your own understanding of the way things are. And I think that's just a huge part of the journey of a man, like you said. And I, before we have to wrap here, I want to touch on the restlessness because I, I love that word. For me, I connect that with purpose. I connect that with a sense of direction so that I, cause I felt that and experienced it myself, that part of me that can't be denied. The part of me that no matter how hard I try to numb it out, try to tune it out, try to distract myself with other things never goes away. So I just want to capture some more of your thoughts on that restlessness and what you, what you tell people, especially young guys who are trying to negotiate that. Yeah. I mean, I think restlessness emerges for a few different reasons on the deepest levels. One is vocational. You know, so if you're just settling into a job you hate for financial security, that'll make you restless. I have many friends like that, like the golden handcuffs, like you're handcuffed to something you hate, but they're golden. So it's hard to take them off. You know, it enables the American dream, if you will. And that's one of my things for the way I disciple, the way I shape people, my relationship with, you know, men is the whole journey of, you know, what's real. I always ask people, how many times do you have to taste something to know it isn't good? How many times do you have to experience something to know it isn't real? So even pastorally, I'm not like, don't do that or else. I'm like, go do that. And in three years, tell me how that works out for you. Tell me if that thing produced in you the kind of joy and feeling of completeness you thought it was going to do. Because already in my head, I'm like, I know it's not because I've already tried that. And the rest of humanity has too and it hasn't worked yet for anybody. So I think the restlessness is one, it's vocational where the spirit is that thing within you that's like, you're meant for more. The spirit is that part of you that's trying to get you not to settle. The spirit is that voice within you calling you beyond a conventional life of just surviving and paying bills. And it's like, no, man, we're here. Love, 
healing. It's bigger than all that. Doesn't mean don't have a job, but you are meant for more than just that. So restlessness will emerge when you're not living with the kind of courage you need to allow the truth of your own voice to emerge. The other part of the restlessness, the one I discussed earlier in my own personal life, that for me wasn't primarily vocational. That was primarily about value. And there is a restlessness that will emerge whenever you're trying to hustle for other people's approval. And I think in our culture, that is a massive thing, especially with media, with clout, with followings. It's, it just kind of speeds up the process, but it's an old thing. It's not a new thing. Like even for me, defining moments when I was young, like my senior year of high school, I can remember after basketball games, let's say I just had like 35 points, the game's over. Now I'm on the floor. And a lot of athletes and artists, they do those kinds of things where I'm playing it casual, like I'm just wandering around, but I'm really moving around so I can get more props from people. Like I'm just happened to be lingering here and you're here. Oh, now you're giving me props. Thank you. But I know what I'm doing, you know? And I would tell people when I was 18, whether it was like kids or other players or players who moved on to college, who I looked up to or coaches and they're like, good job, Kevin. You're going to do great in college. Like, well done, son. What they said to me was you're doing good. What my soul received from them was you matter. It wasn't, I'm doing a good job. It was because you see me and affirm me in this moment for that one split second, I feel like I'm enough. I feel like I matter. And I feel like there's a sense of value because I didn't have any belief in an intrinsic value. I didn't trust I was enough at that age. I didn't think I could stop hustling and performing and, you know, putting on shows for people and still be loved. I had no concept of that at that point in my life. And I think the restlessness and the existential sense is that it's for me, the more essential question than what am I going to do? The more essential question is who am I? Because what I do always flows out of who I am. Somebody can ask the question, what am I going to do for 20 years and be successful and never ask the previous question, who am I? And they're successful at 40 and they're still restless because they don't know who the hell they are. And they didn't realize the success wasn't my own. It was somebody else's. It was desires other people placed in me and told me I'm supposed to want, but it wasn't what I really wanted. Now I'm 40 and I have a mortgage and I feel stuck. So to me, the, the restlessness is, and that for me is the defining thing for my life, for why I'm a pastor, for why I've given my life to guide people and lead people towards these experiences is when I have nothing, when I bring nothing, when I'm at my worst, when it's all over, when it's the end, and then you meet love, and then you meet God, and you experience it as absolute embrace, then that's the moment you're like, the end is just the beginning. You thought it was over, and it really's just begun. When you thought the very moment, love only matters for that part of you that feels unlovable. When you're loved as unlovable, you're like, this is it. Everything, like, that's a fascinating dynamic and image I use for people. I'm like, every day we get up, we wake up, we get out of the river, and we go begging other people for Dixie cups of water. Splash it on me. That's approval. Tell me I'm successful. Tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me I'm attractive. Whatever it is, you're in the river. That, to me, is the whole thing. How do we, through spiritual practices, through letting go of illusions, et cetera, how do we trust that there is a river and the river is love and grace and absolute universal affirmation over your life. Because once I have that, I'm not begging for your approval anymore. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this because it's naturally flowing out of me for the sake of the world. And every person and every young man becoming a man 
that to me is the thing that breaks the pride or breaks feeling like we're not enough is like when you're at your worst, if you feel the love and embrace there, it's over. You can start. Now we can start. That's where we can really start now from there for you and for who you are. I love that, man. What a great place to put a bookmark in this chapter of our conversation. I think you brought some really great wisdom here today, man. I really appreciate everything you had to say. And you know, before I cut you loose and before we hear more about how other people can get involved with what you guys are doing out there, and let me ask you a few lightning round style questions. You up for that? Yes, sir. All right. So what is one thing you've learned in your life you wish you knew when you were 18? <clears throat> just take the risk whatever that is, when it comes to the vocation, just do it and try it. And when you fail, no matter what happens, you're going to be okay. Awesome. And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? The power that comes from accepting that parts of you are powerless. So it's the power that emerges when you know you don't need absolute power and you don't need to do everything. And once you accept that, you realize, but I am powerful to do all types of things. Beautiful, man. And last but not least, where can people go to follow you, find you, get involved with what you guys are doing out there? Yeah, the church my wife and I started here in Hawaii is called Imagine, Imagine Church. So you can find Imagine on Instagram at ImagineHI. You can look it up on our website, ImagineHI.org. You could find me on Instagram at, at KevinSweeney1. And the newest podcast I'm doing is called The Church Needs Therapy. So you can just type in The Church Needs Therapy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. It'll come up. The podcast is run through my own personal Instagram. It doesn't have its own thing. So at Kevin Sweeney one, imagine HI. Yeah, follow along because the teachings that I do are up on our podcast. All A lot of imagined stuff is up there, guided prayers. All the things we do in our community is available publicly as well. And then, yeah, The Church Needs Therapy. That's just me saying like, I love the church enough to call it out and to critique it so that she can become more for the world. So it's not, it's absolutely not me being a hater. It's me believing in her enough. And like we talk about young men, the church needs to take responsibility for her own life, for her own transgressions. She needs to find those things, face them, grieve over them, let herself be forgiven and choose to move into a better future. So in my little corner of the universe, we are trying to do that in our own way over here. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, thank you for sharing that. Definitely. We'll keep sending people your way, especially our community out there in Honolulu. Awesome, man. Thank you for bringing a different perspective. As we were going through the conversation, I think you're the first pastor who's been on the show here. So <laughs> setting the bar high. There we go. I appreciate that. That that Things like that, like so much of our church is unchurched, de-churched kind of people. So I do find like, this is for me, these are the spaces I want to be, you know, I don't want to go argue with religious people about stuff. I want to be with people who are also looking to create a better future, asking these deeper questions. So I love it, man. I'm so grateful to be able to do this. Well, again, man, thank you for taking time to be on here today. We'll have to circle back and catch up further down the road. And yeah, man, that'd be great. Awesome, man. Well, best of luck and love to you and your family and your community out there with everything you're doing, man. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks, Jetty. All right, fam, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Remember to go to risingman.org to check out your opportunity for you to come deeper into your journey of the Rising Man and be a bigger part of this movement, whether it's our virtual men's fire circles, our 12-week inferno journey, or our four-day compass initiation. Go check it out. All that info is at risingman.org, as well as links and resources for this episode and every other episode from the podcast, risingman.org. Go check it out. 
And while you're at it, please subscribe to us wherever you're listening to the podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash The Rising Man Movement. Got a bunch of awesome, amazing new content that's going to be dropping in the next few months. So make sure you subscribe there so you don't miss it. And the podcast so you don't miss an episode on any week. I don't know if you haven't hit that subscribe button by now, go do it. And make sure you check us out on Instagram at Rising Man Movement as well. Big love to my power squad, my guys who got my back through thick and thin every single time. Julian, Sean, Ryan, Mark, and Rowan. You guys are always holding it down. And I appreciate what you guys are doing to help me keep this thing growing. And everybody else who's been stepping up. There's a lot of other unsung heroes who've been lending their time and energy behind the scenes to make this more than just something that I've got to hold. Because there's no way that I could hold it if, if it was just me. So to everyone out there, all the unsung heroes, thinking about you. Thank you for what you do. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.